Hello and welcome to this episode of the Millis Podcast, a show about ideas, books and events from the Christian intellectual scene in Australia and beyond. I'm your host, Simon Kennedy. I'm the director of the Millis Institute and a senior lecturer in humanities at Christian Heritage College. I'm also a research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. And I'm joined today by my friend, Dr. Bruce Pass. I'm just going to get Bruce up on the screen now. There he is. Uh, Bruce is lecturer in Christian thought and history at Brisbane School of Theology. He's also a senior research fellow at the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. And he's the author of, uh, well, he's the author of one book and editor of another book and translator. The book he wrote is The Heart of Dogmatics, Christology and Christocentrism in Herman Bavinck. That's uh, published in 2020. And he's a translator and editor of a number of Herman Bavinck's theological orations, uh, and they're collected in a book that's entitled On Theology, which was published with Brill in 2020. Uh, and I'm really grateful, Bruce, uh, that you've joined me today on the podcast. Welcome to the Millis podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. Uh, before we get into the uh, important stuff uh, about uh, this chap called Bavinck, Bruce, could you share with our audience some of your background? So, You've gone from being a classical musician to being an Anglican minister to now being a theologian and lecturer. How did you, what's the journey to Brisbane and Brisbane School of Theology if you want to give us a potted history? Yeah, the potted history. Yes, for many years I was a classical pianist. Um, had the great privilege of studying in Sydney first at the Conservatorium and then uh, in Weimar in Germany. Mm. Uh, and that was just marvellous um, opportunities. I think for me, uh, it became increasingly clear to me over a period of time that my place in God's kingdom and my place in serving him uh, was in teaching and preaching mm. God's word rather than uh, being a, a musician. It's interesting at the time I felt I could identify colleagues who were musicians um, <laughs> and their place is kind of to be musicians. They seem to be doing that better than me. Yeah, um, they're all now in full-time ministry. <laughs> um, so maybe we're all looking at each other, thinking the same thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wanted to continue um, ministering to uh, Lebanese Muslims, among whom I lived mm. in the southwest of Sydney. Yeah. Uh, just near the airport. Um, spent six years in that suburb. And there weren't that many churches in that city. Uh, and a lot of migrants. So that was my initial uh, hope in ministry. I was ordained as an Anglican minister in the Diocese of Sydney. Yeah. And since then, I've moved to increasingly white neighbourhoods. Right. So uh, from I pastored a church in the Upper North Shore of Sydney yeah. for four years. That was a, a church plant, So the, um, followed by a doctorate at the University of Edinburgh. Yes. And now I live in Brisbane. Yeah, uh, I, as you introduced me very kindly, I am a lecturer in Christian thought and history at the Brisbane School of Theology. Yes, yeah, very good. It's interesting. I, I mean, I too used to be a musician in the past, but uh, we won't talk too much about that. Um, but uh, yeah, very interesting. It's always interesting to hear people's backgrounds and where they've where they've come from. Now, um, so you did your doctorate at the University of Edinburgh, uh, and your doctorate was on uh, a chap called Herman Bavinck. Uh, can you introduce us to this this person? So, who was Bavinck, and um, can you give us uh, a bio, something of a biography of him? And mm. then I'm, we'll follow up and kind of find out more about what he thought. But but who was he first of all? Helen Bavinck's a very um, 
intriguing figure that came to prominence in 2008 mm. uh, with the completion of uh, the translation of his main work. Mm. Reform Dogmatics is four volumes. Uh, little bits of it had been translated yeah. in the previous hundred years, uh, but it wasn't actually until 2008 that the whole thing had been translated. Mm. Uh, and it has basically become a bit of a cottage industry since then. Mm. I think um, the interest in Bavink uh, is that he is a theologian that's not as boring as Hodge, uh, <laughs> but is more conservative than Bart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's a bit of a bodge if yes. you put those two <laughs> theologians yes. together. Yes, very good. He's a bodge. And well, you're, talking about, you're talking about Charles Hodge there, aren't you? Like Princeton's Charles, Charles Hodge. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, maybe we could say he's a heart. Oh, yeah. Um, so he does have this pietistic streak to his yes. of Christianity, and he grew up in those circles, and he's a late 19th century man. So when you read Bart, uh, Bartink, you do get this sense of um, a very warm heart as well as somebody who's yeah. deeply committed to the intellectual history of Western Europe and antiquity. Mm. He was a Semitic scholar, uh, before he devoted himself to dogmatics or systematic theology. Yeah. Um, and I think that appealed to me very much, that this was somebody who was deeply interested in the philological task. Mm. Uh, so original language is, is something I was very interested in. I'm delighted to learn um, all three biblical languages while I was at Moore College, mm. um, watching a theologian spending a great deal of time uh, in bitter Hebrew exegesis or Greek exegesis before he begins to think about a theological problem was very impressive. Mm. And also the fact that uh, when I began to read his works, he would withhold giving his opinion until he had recounted what everybody else had said, mm. which for him was a 19, uh, <clears throat> you know, a sequence of 19 centuries of Christian reflection. Yeah. And the, the really interesting part for me, I guess, was he would include in that philosophical developments. So he didn't restrict himself to just church figures. Uh, he was very interested in figures who might identify as Christians, but perhaps we would shrug mm. our shoulders a little bit. Um, mm. So figures like Kant mm. and Hegel, um, deeply interested in modern philosophy. Um, deeply interested in ancient philosophy, um, back to the pre-Socratics. And this, to me, was a vision of theological reflection that I hadn't really encountered much. Right, right. And there seemed to be a deep humility about rehearsing what everybody else had said on this subject before I tell you what I think. Yes. This historical, um, historiographical approach, I guess, to theology struck me as... Um, potentially a way of teaching me something about where I'm located in yeah. a much longer story and in a family of like the house of faith, the household of faith. Yes. Um, so I felt like I needed to stick with him until I'd really absorbed that. Mm -hmm. And if I'm really telling the truth, I thought I should probably read it before I read Karl Barth. So it's been my sure. preparatory project. <laughs> I see. So your whole doctorate is preparation for Bart. Is that what you're saying? Basically, that's what it was. <laughs> um, 
And um, you're, so, so this year, uh, 2021, marks the centenary of Baving's death. Um, and you're organizing a conference uh, yeah. to, to mark this. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually giving a paper at this conference, which I'm really mm. pleased to be doing. And there's a, there's, a, there's a big gap in the shelf just here. You'll be able to, <laughs> viewers will be able to see it. That's my Bavink gap. All of my books are in my home office because I'm working on writing this paper at the moment. So um, I don't have any books I can kind of wave around because they're all at home. I'm working on them. But you're organizing, organizing a conference. We'll come back, we'll come back mm. to the conference. Um, but the question probably for listeners and viewers is why, why would you organize a conference on Herman Bavink? I mean, mm. why, does, why does he matter for theology? I mean, he's becoming more of a big deal. You said there's a cottage industry growing up around him and and spaces like the gospel coalition and other more popular uh, evangelical and reformed spaces are promoting his work why does he matter why is this why is there this resurgence and in interest in Babink in in um, and our circles yeah that's a great question um i think um with the conference and even just with the books that i've published mm. Um, one of my motivations was to provide something that didn't exist when I started reading Bavink myself yeah. uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I could actually identify particular publications that I wanted to produce something on a different topic that was like this. So I remember being particularly impressed by Hank Fonden Belt's chapter on Bavink in a book that he wrote on the authority of scripture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I thought I want to write a whole book that's like that chapter, but on Hmm. on the modern side of Bavink, the, mm. the German idealism side of Bavink. And this is The Heart of Dogmatics. This is your book that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and that became The Heart of Dogmatics. And when I look back on it, I think, you know, I'll leave it to other people to measure its value. Sure. Um, I'm really glad that that's the type of project I was able to do. And now yeah. even with the translation projects, I remember before I read Dutch, thinking, oh, wow, modernism and orthodoxy just seems like an important text. Yeah. It's a shame that that's not translated yet. Yeah. Um, so those four pretty lengthy pieces, they're, um, they're, <laughs> they're pretty long speeches. Mm. Uh, but being able to make those available for people who may not yet have Dutch uh, is something I wanted to do. And even the conference, um, one of the real highlights of my undergrad theology was that it coincided with the quincentenary of Calvin mm. and more college convened a conference at which Paul Helm and Oliver Crisp spoke. And that was yeah. just an extraordinary opportunity. So uh, yeah, to provide a conference like that, we have five plenary speakers from uh, other countries who are experts in their fields. Mm. Uh, so to provide something that didn't exist 10 years ago, I think is a great um, part of my motivation in this yeah. project. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I've, I've read the um, orations that you translated to great profit. I think that they're tremendously interesting and they show the development of his thought on those questions of religion, theology, and the, the academy um, over his career. So I encourage listeners to go and go and have a look at that. Um, uh, you may have to more, remortgage your house to be able to purchase a copy, but if you can get a copy through your library, uh, <laughs> that's the yes. way to do it. <laughs> yes. It's not your yes. fault, though, Bruce. <laughs> you don't set the price. No, it's um, unfortunate. Um, academic publishing is really for libraries to purchase, unless you're really excited about Barvink or you're independently wealthy. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or you own a library. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And it is a it's a great book. I mean, it is worth it's worth buying to read. I, I found it excellent. But it, but I guess the question now is, um, you know, I, I definitely understand. We understand. I think why you would organise the conference. But why is there a resurgence in interest on on someone like Bavink? Why is everyone talking about him? Do you think? Yeah, I I think in America there's a great interest in the. Uh, circles that are reformed because Barting offers a very seriously thought out alternative mm. to questions that were the pressing questions until the First World War. Right. Um, and they would be things like modernism and orthodoxy, right? But other, other issues as well, Christ and culture and so on. Yeah. I think you can boil it down to, I mean, because we have the towering figure of Karl Barth who then comes and gives a very different answer. I think, uh, I mean, Karl Barth read Barvink and used Barvink to, uh, not just as a historical source, but mm. also as a constructive source. So some of Barth's great emphasis on revelation is something that he found very attractive in Barvink. Mm. And so this basic idea that we need to retrieve a very robust doctrine of revelation is an intuition among conservative Protestants. And I would number Barth as a as belonging to that group when you yep. look at the alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you, but of course, Karl Barth has a very different answer to, to Barving. But what I found particularly interesting in my doctoral studies was to realise that the nature of the different answer boils down to different judgments that are made with respect uh, to hermeneutics, different mm. judgments which are made with respect to the historical Jesus. Yeah. Um, and Barving offers a very sophisticated alternative to the judgments that Karl Barth had made. Yeah. And now that we're far enough from Barth, um, scholars of all stripes recognise um, the extraordinary depth and richness of Barth as well as some of his limitations. Mm. So Barving shines as another alternative. You know, is there yeah. another way that he gestured yeah. Uh, which it might be possible to travel. Yeah. And as I indicated, your alternatives are a bit thin for that type yeah. of theology going backwards. You've got stodgy hodgy. Yep. Um, but going forwards, you don't have people like Barvik um, yep. producing something that's comparable to what he did. Yes. Uh, not, not of his stature. Yes. So I think that's why people are wanting to read a systematic theology that's 100 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, is because of that. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, do, do you think that there's also, it's partly, do you think that there's a bit of a, uh, people, people tend to leap from sort of Calvin to either, and they might they might land on Hodge, and then they might skip Hodge and then come to the 20th century and go, oh, well, you know, we've read Calvin and now we're going to do our own thing. But there's actually, there, there are these figures in between and Bavink's one of these these major figures in between who actually offers something as substantial as what Calvin's doing in effect, um, would you say? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just really hard to, um, to measure, mm. you know, the value of thinkers. I mean, uh, often it's just the sequence of history in which these people yeah. um, are to be located. Um, there are some very enthusiastic Bavink scholars out there, but yeah. I'm, not, I'm actually... <laughs> The black sheep of the group. I don't think he is the kind of stature of thinker, right? Calvin and Barton and Aquinas. These, right, right, right. Uh, these 
Well, I was going to say Twin Peaks, but now I've just said three names. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. But um, I, I do think that I do wonder a little bit just about the unresolved nature of some of these theological problems. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I was particularly struck by um, in my time in Edinburgh was Professor David Ferguson, who's now the Regius Professor in Cambridge. He just made a passing comment that he thinks that some of the pre-war theologians are far more important than we realise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were grappling with these problems in, in very credible ways. Mm. And so people of the likes of uh, Macintosh and uh, uh, Willy Haumann, mm. so names that might just be familiar to people who've studied a bit of theology, but actually uh, P.T. Forsyth is another thinker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, people that were grappling with these problems in very rigorous ways. And Willy mm. Haumann was very important for, for Karl Barth. Um, there, there's there's a really interesting quote from um, Brunner, who's the you know the naughty mm. sidekick to the natural <laughs> theology argument between yeah. Albert and Brunner. Uh, but Brunner says there's this group of theologians that led a, a neo-Calvinistic and neo-Lutheran Renaissance mm. in, and uh, restated the doctrines of the Trinity and Revelation. And he mm. lists off half a dozen names, among which Barvik features. All right. Yeah. Um, and I think probably when you look at that list of names, Barvik is probably one of the most important figures there, but there right. are people like Schlutter. Mm. Uh, Adolf Schlutter is a very important figure. And um, it's interesting, nobody's really interested in Schlutter anymore, but he's a, a towering figure of conservative Protestant thought yep. at the end of the 19th century. And everybody recognised that. So yeah. uh, Bart, Bonhoeffer, all of these people yeah. went to hear Schlatter. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Very interesting. And so Bavink's part, Bavink's one of the figures that's kind of being retrieved, I guess, from this era of... Yeah, he's a very similar figure to Schlatter, except that he worked at a tiny little college in the Netherlands. Yeah, um, yeah it's very interesting, isn't it? So he, he, went, he, was, he was a professor at Kampen and then yeah. at the Free University, correct? Indeed. And uh, although the Free University is a, a large university now, uh, it had very humble genesis, mm -hmm. very humble beginning. Yeah, and so um, Bavink would be would be. It's safe to categorise Bavink as a neo-Calvinist. He, he walked alongside Abraham Kuyper, and he was actually a member of Parliament as well, yes. like, just like Kuyper was, which is really fascinating. Um, it's a different era, isn't it? I mean, I'm not sure whether you're planning to become a member of Parliament, Bruce, but I don't know if I'll have time. But um, <laughs> but the the where does, how does he fit in as a neo-Calvinist? Because when I think when I read him, I've studied neo-Calvinism, done a bit of writing on it, and I don't. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't have the obvious distinctives that Kuiper brings out in his writings, and Kuiper's a lot more bombastic than than Bavink ever would be. Mm -hmm. But but Bavink is still in this camp. I mean, how mm -hmm. how does this how does this work? Do you think in terms of when in assessing where Bavink is coming from and his his work? Yeah, it's a very good question. It's actually an area of research that hasn't really been exhausted. Right. So people have written <clears throat> on the relationship of Kuiper and Barvik. Um, but I actually think there's a little bit more to Oak and Prod. Mm. One of the interesting features that Barvik found so compelling in Kuiper's thought <laughs> um, is just a retrieval of the doctrine of creation. Yes. 
So there's the famous saying, uh, and Kuiper was an extraordinary orator. And yeah. you just read his speeches, you can imagine the electricity of the room. Yeah. It just leaps off the page. And this yeah, yeah. is why he was very effective in politics. He was an extraordinary public speaker. Uh, but that famous quote about there not being uh, a square inch um, of, the, of the earth over which Christ does not declare mine, mm. um, this kind of rhetoric um, that Christ is Lord of creation as well as the Lord of redemption. Mm. And what does that mean for the relationship between nature and grace? Yes. One of the things a lot of people don't give enough attention to is that the First Vatican Council is a very recent event. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got uh, neo-Thomism bubbling away. Yeah. Yep. So the relationship between nature and grace, between creation and redemption, is a pretty hot topic at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so lots of people are really interested in the relationship of Christ and culture. Yeah. And so I think Barving was particularly interested. What does it mean to be a member of a modern European society? Yes. And a conservative Protestant, because those yeah. things had often been cast as mutually exclusive or else um, you kind of had to compromise on one side of the equation if you were to fit in as a mm -hmm. member of modern culture or a member of conservative churches. And Barving is really interested in being able to articulate, how is it possible for me to be a, a modern European man who's a citizen of the Netherlands? Right. As well as a pretty conservative reformed Protestant who's got that pietistic kind of streak to him. Yes. Um, and I think he, that's something he really, really resonated with in the works of Kuiper. So it's the it's it's the it's the relationship between Christ and culture, or the framework for that that Kuiper articulated, which actually flows from his emphasis on doctrine of creation and the way that Christ is Lord of that that realm as well as as of redemption. That that exactly. you're suggesting is is makes him a neo Calvinist, I, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. and um, this strain of thinking. There's an interesting line of continuity through to the Yale School with uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's famous book, mm. Christ and Culture, mm. and then Hans Fry's Types of Christian Theology, which sets out a typology of Christ and culture, uh, a theological typology that is essentially the same issue. Yeah. Um, so there's some very interesting connections to be drawn going yeah. forwards. And um, George Hunsinger is a thinker who's actually alerted uh, evangelicals to that yeah right not have necessarily connected the dots in the arguments that uh, in the american reception of Karl Barth, you have mm. people like carl henry on the one side yeah and cornelius von till mm. and then on the other side uh, those protestants that were more enthusiastic about Karl Barth. Uh, hunsinger perceptively notes that um Barvik's a figure that um It'd be very profitable to read and think about in the yes. midst of those um, fairly turgid arguments. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Do you, you you've hinted now at I guess Baving's place in in the history of thought. Do you do you do you think he's a modern thinker or a modern person, or is he yeah. better understood as a traditional Reformed theologian? Um, 
I, I suppose I'm actually my, my current research on Baving is looking at his philosophy of history, and so I'm mm-hmm. seeing a lot of interesting interplays between. 19th century German idealism and what and what Baving's thinking. Mm. But most people will read him as backing up what Calvin said. And so, <laughs> you know, how, how are we, you know, you, you, I suppose you probably know what I mean. Like how, how do we, how are we meant to, to understand him? Do you think what's the best way of understanding Baving in this, in this context? Is he modern or is he more of a traditional thinker? Do you think? Yeah, that, that's a, that's an important question that, um, the scholarship is wrestling with at the moment. And one of the things that I wanted to draw out in my own doctoral research was to ask that question, what does it even mean? Yeah. Uh, so some people like to portray Bavink as a, you know, an orthodox thinker, others as a modern thinker, yeah. others as somehow a mixture of those two things. But what does it even mean to say that? Yeah, that's right. Well, I spent quite a bit of time um, teasing out distinct threads um, suggesting that, you know, he's definitely historically a modern figure. I mean, a lot of the ways he looks at the world, he appropriates um, the central dogma thesis, Mm. which is a very 19th century way of thinking about the history of the development of dogma. Yep, yep. There's quite a bit of German idealism in the philosophical apparatus that he uses. Yes. Um, and he's at the end of his life. He's even warming to the history of religion school. That they they actually have some insights that we can yes. possibly appropriate. Yet I think on key doctrinal decisions, he moves that you make very early on uh, in the piece. He simply reaffirms Reformed orthodoxy, and the key yep. one is that the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of faith. Yeah, um, and so from this point of view, um, you, you you cannot read Bavink as somebody other than a theologian of historical Christianity. Yes, uh, and so your question is a good one, and I think um, it's probably worth just waiting to see the ongoing engagement yeah. with the secondary literature. So I noticed um, just this morning that there is a conference being held in Amsterdam to oh. mark the centenary of Barving's death. And one of the papers is, is there one, two or three Barvings? So this <laughs> ongoing There's always discussion. been two, haven't there? <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I rather cheekily suggested we need a hypostatic Barving. So <laughs> that's like that. That's good. One Barving and two natures. Yes. Um, we'll see how that flies. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, what does it mean to be a modern thinker? That That's actually a question that people are trying to grapple with when they're reading Barving. Yeah. It strikes me, Bruce, reading Bavink, that he is he's definitely a modern thinker in the sense that he is asking modern questions and trying to answer them with modern in modern frameworks, whilst, as you said, still adhering very closely to reformed orthodoxy. He doesn't in fact, I, I, I'm not deeply read in him, but he doesn't seem to slip anywhere from what I can see in that regard. But he but he mm. does. He's definitely, you know, he, like you've mentioned, his, his engagement with German idealism is quite striking and very sophisticated. He's not, he's read these thinkers and he's wrestled with them. And if he weren't a man of your, of that, you know, if he wasn't a man of his own age, he wouldn't bother. You know what I mean? So he's actually think, really trying to engage the culture in that sense, I think. And I think Barving even reveals himself to be anticipating late modernism or, or mm-hmm. post-modernism, mm-hmm. if you like, because he, ha- he adopts a very eclectic approach to these thinkers. Yeah. So he doesn't tie his wagon to any one thinker. He's 
And that's a very late modern or postmodern idea that you can actually mm -hmm. take a, a polyphonic approach, if you yeah. like, to different mutually exclusive frameworks. Uh, so the fact that he does that is something which is very striking. Yeah. Um, it raises the stakes on coherence. Yes. Can you actually mix, you know, water and oil and get mayonnaise, or do you just have these two mutually exclusive frameworks that sit in a kind of a suspension? Mm. Um, so Barbic is also doing retrieval theology or uh, resourcement theology, mm -hmm. as the Roman Catholics would speak of mm. this idea. Um, people like Blondel and de Lubac. Um, He's doing a resourcement of theology and philosophy of many eras. And mm. I think that actually connects to the contemporary moment in a yeah. way uh, that is perhaps even more prescient than other thinkers. Yeah. yeah. So this kind of uh, eclecticism, you, you don't see that philosophical eclecticism in Karl Barth. He has a very different rationale. Yeah. 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 If you read his, mon his monograph on Anselm, this is not what's going on with Karl Barth. And no, so it's just curious as a project to, to um, can we do that now? Like people are trying to do that now. Yes. Yeah. And uh, tell us more about the conference. Yeah, so conference. It's, com it's coming up in December. You, you mm. had to put up a, uh, a poster with having wearing a mask at one point because it had been, it had been postponed and, and, uh, uh, call for papers was you know read was adjusted in in, in light yeah. of that. So you, you said you got five plenary speakers, um, and I guess you don't know exactly what's going to happen, do you? Because we don't know what's going to happen with borders, even within Australia, let alone overseas. So yes, so I was very keen to postpone the conference six months just to see what might uh, mm. transpire. Um, so as things stand, we we are planning, Lord willing, to convene the conference in person in Brisbane, even if that only means with interstate travel restrictions and international mm. travel restrictions that uh, it's only people in Queensland that can get there in person. Uh, there's certainly sufficient interest. It'll be a, a nice time. Yeah. Um, my deep hope is that the borders will be open and that yep. those interested in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth and wherever. Yeah. Um, we have a, you know, I'm hoping also that the scholars from New Zealand could get across on yes. some kind of travel corridor. Um, I think I'm reconciled to the fact that all the international speakers yeah. won't be able to come, and that includes four of our plenary speakers. Yeah, yeah. So we have 18 short papers, and about half of those are from scholars in North America, mm. uh, in Britain, in Europe. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and Asia, actually, which is very interesting. Asia, yeah, very good. Diving studies. Um, it would be, yeah, I've reconciled myself to the fact that that's just happening on Zoom. Yep. So all I'm trying to communicate to people is that it's on, and yes. at a minimum it's on Zoom. Yes. Um, but if you're <laughs> an Australian, then maybe you can get here in person. If you're in Brisbane, yes, uh, there's very high likelihood you can get there in person. Yes. Oh, that's something I'm looking forward to greatly is gathering with uh, uh, with everyone to be there in person. Um, and so it's happening. What are the dates are? The uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Actually, 9th and 10th of December. Is that right? No, it's nice. Thank you. Sixth and seventh of December. Thank you, and well, um, and and the plenary speakers. Can you list them for us, just to give us a bit of a taster of yes. what's coming? So we have um, the schema of the conference is a glance at Barvink's entire work output and 
contribution in life. So this mm. hasn't really been done very satisfactorily. So mm. Barbing, as you mentioned, was a politician. He also wrote in the fields of pedagogy. He was yes. knighted for his services to pedagogy in the Netherlands. Yeah. He, he wrote on psychology. He was very interested in psychology. Mm. Mm. What makes that interesting is that Freud is just publishing his material and this is a burgeoning mm-hmm. field of inquiry in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, he also, as I mentioned, was very invested in the philological task. Yes. Um, so we're, we're seeking to reflect uh, all of those with the binary speakers as well as the short papers that have been accepted. So we have uh, Henk von den Belt, who yes. occupies Barvink's chair at the Free University in Amsterdam. He'll be speaking on Barvink's appropriation of reformed sources. Yes. Uh, we have uh, Kurt von Beckham, who teaches at the other institute where Barvink taught. He's an Old Testament professor, and he'll be speaking on Barvink's use of scripture. So not just his doctrine of scripture, mm. but how he actually makes that movement from the biblical text mm. to a doctrinal conclusion. Uh, then we're privileged to also be welcoming Oliver Crisp, who will be speaking on Barving's use of philosophy. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. This is a very robust um, philosophical element in Barving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we're pleased to have... Um, Graham Cole speaking about, I think, as a Trinitarian theologian. Yes. So I think there are a number of reasons why we can focus on Barvink as a Trinitarian theologian, even though I argue that Christology is the central dogma mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. system. Yeah. There are good reasons for that. So we'll have yeah. to listen to uh, Graham uh, on that. And James Eglinton um, will be speaking on Barvink's political career. Great. And, and James, is, James, he'll be, I'm assuming he'll be reflecting some of the research that he's been doing for the biography that he recently published. So Indeed. Be- so um, there is a nice section at the end of his biography where Barving is outlined in the uh, political <coughs> activity, his speeches in the mm. first chamber of the Dutch parliament. Uh, his, and, and, and James does a beautiful job of weaving that into a narrative of Barving's own life Mm. Uh, so de- uh, James will definitely be uh, speaking uh, to his most recent research on the life of Barbie. Fantastic. That's all very exciting. And, there's, and, the, and the website has, um, I'll, I'll put the website links in the show notes and so on so people can, can look it up. But there, there's, as you said, there's a lot, of, a lot of other people giving papers on all kinds of topics, a whole rain, wide range of topics, Christ and culture, uh, his, his, his historical background about being doctrinal sort of more studies in dogmatics and so on. It looks like it's going to be a rich, a rich time. Uh, Bruce, before we finish, um, do, you, do you have anything else you want to share about what's, what's happening for you in terms of your writing and research? Are, are you working on any other books or are you ferreting around in, a, in other areas on, on Herman Bavink perhaps at the moment? Um, oops. Nope. Uh, <laughs> Bit of a wobble. Is everything okay? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what you call the, it's not a Freudian slip, but another <laughs> kind of slip there. Yeah. Um, I've been doing a little bit of research in doctrine, Barving's doctrine of providence, mm. the way his parliamentary speeches illumine that. Yes, very interesting. Because one of the interesting things about Barving's ethics is that he's actually making speeches about what we should do in the East Indies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's making speeches about what we should do about the League of Nations, what we should do about uh, women's suffrage. Yes. And when you get a theologian actually articulating 
actions that should be done, it's a very different situation to articulating mm -hmm. abstract propositions about a doctrine. So yes. um, I'm actually... I'm actually problematizing some elements of Baving's doctrine of providence yes. through the lens of his parliamentary speeches and attempting to connect it to some more recent monographs on that doctrine mm -hmm. uh, to explore ways that Baving's doctrine might be rehabilitated or, or perhaps slightly adjusted. Um, so that's one, that's one area of research that I'm looking at. Um, Another area is his doctrine of the church. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so not necessarily seeking to reappropriate elements of his doctrine of the church, but I, I think there is a remarkable intuition that's structural in his theology, and it crops up in his doctrine of the church, but potentially can be used to rearticulate the marks of the church. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. In a way that avoids some of the difficulties in Reformed theology on that element ah. of but also one that potentially uh, has ecumenical potential. Very good. That's that's all. That all sounds really really interesting indeed. So, um, look, Bruce, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and join me on the podcast. It's been great to talk about Herman Bavink and uh, about the conference that's coming up. And um, so, yeah, really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure, Simon. And thank you to our listeners and our viewers for joining us on the Millis podcast. We'll uh, see you again next time.